0: Words, they get golly hard when they jumble, jumping over hurdles, like a turtle, and pool, like and cake pool. cold blood is with I'm a boss. Ooh.
1: This is that got me thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week I've been thinking about the factors that affect our perception of reality and its restraints. I've been thinking about whether eternity is an open or closed system. I've been thinking about chaos, information, the bobs, T. S. Eliot, and time travel. My guest today is best-selling author and journalist James Glick, who Wikipedia calls a historian of science and one of the great science writers of all time. His most recent book is Time Travel, A History, and I'd venture to say an anthology of sorts, and we'll talk about that. Um, welcome, Mr. Glick, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.
1: So one thing that got me thinking just today, was the term historian of science. I hadn't heard that before, and I'm wondering what you think of that descriptor. Does it fit? Is it one you're happy to have placed upon you?
0: I'm not going to claim to be a historian of science. I mean, one thing is, I started out as a journalist, and I still think of myself as a journalist. My, my first book's involved a lot of traveling around and talking to people and interviewing them to find out what they were doing and and they they tended to be scientists and there is a thing in universities called history of science and there are professional historians of science and there is a discipline and there are journals and I am definitely not a part of that so I don't want to lay claim to be in a, the conventional sense.
1: Do you right. do you like being associated with the term? Do you think that's a valuable um, endeavor?
0: Well, by now I have to look at what I've been writing all these years and admit that there's a lot of history in it and there's a lot of science. And um, I'm not a scientist myself, so what interests me is. First of all, the process of science—how it develops, how the human beings who are creating it do what they do—which um, is, I believe, a much messier and more human process than conventional history tends to make it seem to be. I mean, that's sort of been—that's been a. Th- a guiding principle for me is to find out how science really works. And it's not cut and dried. When we we take science as students in school, especially at the beginning, they teach us what's known as if it were always known and as if it were always going to be known. But it's not that way. It's a process of exploration and uncertainty. So that's that's one thing. But the other thing is that because I'm not a scientist, the kind of science that I tend to care about is the kind that I think we all care about that affects the culture we live in and the way we think about our world and and sheds light on it. And, and some parts of science are obviously more esoteric than others. Um, again, I guess this will now be the fourth or fifth time I've said this. I'm not a scientist, so... I, I know, and I'm going to just stop you
1: right there because I think you absolutely are a scientist. I was thinking about that as you kept saying, it, and I was like, well, "He's definitely a scientist. What kind of scientist is he?" And I guess you're a, a scientist of science, like you're you're studying and and um, and testing and comparing and. And breaking apart and putting t- back together, and then reporting on science. And so, I'd say you're very much a, a science—maybe not in the conventional term, um, but definitely a scientist. Right. Well,
0: that's, that's very nice. And it's—and I guess another thing I would say is that children are scientists. Children are
1: absolutely are
0: the first scientists. And and when scientists are really good, they're acting like children too. You know, they're curious about the world. They're just trying to, they say, what if I do this? Let's see what happens.
1: And so, some of your uh, previous books and best selling and, and um, uh, finalists in many award categories, you wrote Chaos Making a New Science, The Nature's Chaos, Genius, A Life and Science of Richard Feynman. Again, it's going to be harder and harder for you to win that argument that you aren't a scientist. Um, no, but I'm not. I, just, yeah, I can yeah, write yeah, yeah. about it. You can something. write about it. You're a reporter. I can talk to them. Yeah, They're, you understand it. I understand
0: some of it. Yeah. And yeah. then sometimes I don't understand it, but that's okay, too. Part of I learned very early that part of being a reporter is to not be afraid of asking dumb questions.
1: Well, and to keep keep heading forward, right, and then being willing to veer if the road kind of takes you that way, which you yeah. did in, in your career. You went from a degree in English and linguistics to a writer at the New York Times Metro Desk and then founded one of the earliest internet service providers and had to smile because I was a, um, which later m- was merged or taken over with MindSpring and I had a MindSpring account in the early, early days. And so were you going for Renaissance Man with intention or did that <laughs> just sort of develop?
0: Oh, I'm No, I'm not going for that. I just, uh, you know, doing what I'm doing. Doing what I'm liking, liking what I'm doing.
1: I think it's a good combination. It seems to have great effects. The, um, the Wall Street Journal says of your book, Time Travel, exhilarating, a veritable theme park of play- playful attractions with Mr. Glick explores infectiousness with infectious gusto. And then the Washington Post says, a bracing swim in the waters of science, technology, and fiction. Um, you wrote for both of those or write for both of those magazines. So I thought, well, even if we took it with a grain of salt, um, it's still amazingly intense uh, and I think accurate after reading the book. Let's talk a little bit about time travel and maybe start with its history uh, as you do, I think, in the beginning, um, beginnings of the book and throughout. You talk about the history of it. Uh, And you say time travel is a fantasy of the modern era, that no one bothered with it, um, the future in 1516, that it was indistinguishable from the past. Yeah.
0: And what do you think about that? Does that strike you as surprising or hard to believe or wrong? It Certainly...
1: To me, it was exciting because it it not only I then, for me, framed what the rest of the book was going to be, and that was wonderful to me, but that it was going to be this exploration and this thing that kept challenging uh, my perception. Because I think when you read that, you think, well, what does that mean for now? You know, what does that mean that now we aren't thinking about and that maybe we will be in the future? And I think it struck me as completely valid and made sense, but something you might not have thought about unless Mr. Glick pointed it out for us?
0: I I think that's the right question to ask. That's the right way to think about it. Um, That was the starting point for me. I mean, when I was a kid, I read some science fiction, as as kids do. I wasn't, um, I wouldn't say through most of my life, I've been a huge science fiction aficionado, but I've always sort of liked it. And I never would have thought that time travel was a subject that you could write a whole book about until I discovered, more or less accidentally, that the idea of time travel is actually very modern. When I say very modern, I mean it starts almost literally with H.G. Wells, which is 1895, so a little over 100 years ago. And, And he was a young man. Working class guy went to went to school, studied a little bit of science, learned about geology, which was a an exciting new subject then. People were digging up old rocks, and he learned a little in biology about about the new theories of Charles Darwin. And now he was on his own, trying to make it as a writer. And his first book was this fantastic story about a future Earth, and he called it the time machine. And in this book, he invents the entire subject of time travel. I mean, he invents the whole realm of possibilities that people have been exploring for the century plus since then. And when I say that, some, I'm, I'm sure there are people listening to us who are, I hope they aren't you know, turning off their radios or closing their computers in in disgust. I know there are people who are thinking that can't possibly be true. And you might be thinking, well, what about, aren't there some ancient Greek myths that involve time travel? Or what about Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol? That was certainly before H.G. Wells. And that would be true. Um, And if you think A Christmas Carol is a sort of time travel story, well, it is arguably And I would say, now that we have the concept of time travel, we're able to look back and apply it retroactively to things that weren't thought of as time travel at the time. But basically, it was brand new when H.G. Wells performed it. And, And even then, he didn't talk about time travel as a thing, but he did call his hero the time traveler, And that's where this modern word comes from.
1: Well, I had loved um, just an excerpt from your book on Newton in the back of this book. And it said that Newton had created words for these ideas that he'd had, which then created these entire concepts that then could be shared with the community and then with with history. And I wanna talk a little bit later about language and words and the effect that that has on our thinking. But let's talk a little bit more about the H.G. Wells time machine and, then you, and, and what that meant for the time. Because when you and I grew up, we had time machines everywhere. It was, as you said, and I love that too, you talk about our cartoons where, you know, they were all flipping back and forth between different times and creating all kinds of havoc and kind of dealing with all the serious elements that time travel um, would entail and the consequences that it would have.
0: Yeah, we're experts on time travel now. Kids are experts on it. Um, <coughs> um, we know about the paradoxes. If we see, if we see, um, if we turn on the TV and we see somebody, you know, sit down on a sort of vehicle and turn a knob to different years, we know what's going to happen. We don't need anything explained to us. Um, and it didn't used to be like that. It used to be, Everything used to be much simpler when, when we were ignorant of these things. You know, sometimes, this is going to sound like I'm changing the subject, but I'm not. You oh, know how right. in, If You know how in um, movies of the 30s or 40s, old black and white movies, you sometimes see this device where pages of a calendar are suddenly flipping they by, mm-hmm. or the, or the hands of a clock are turning very rapidly. And um, you're being told, as the viewer of the movie, that time is passing. And that looks very old-fashioned to us now, because, I mean, no movie that is made now would, would do that. That would look goofy, right? Because we don't need that explained to us. But at the time, they did need it explained. It wasn't clear unless it was spelled out that time was passing. You know, we're uh, movies have gotten much more complicated in their treatment of time, and that's a version of time travel, too.
1: And, and we assume it's going to happen, right? We would assume that a movie is going to jump from time to time to time, and we're kind of paying attention to how much has, time has passed based on, on what's changed. And I think it'd be more odd if it didn't. It's like, oh, that's a, a move, uh, play that they turned into a movie, because you no know, time really hasn't passed much.
0: Yeah, we're very comfortable with flashbacks and flash-forwards. I mean, another device that we don't need anymore. And, and as, don't you think
1: as a culture, where, we spend a lot of time in our minds traveling back and forward and back and forward. I mean, you just again and again, all we're hit with, bombarded every day, is, you know, be in the now, be in the now, be in the now, meditate, be in the now. Because we aren't as a culture.
0: Yeah, that's true. Let's talk later. Let's talk yeah. some more before we're done about being in yeah. the now. But but I want to say that um, we have all of these technologies information technologies that involve a kind of time travel i'm using the word loosely now but you know we have instant replays in sporting events i'm old enough to remember when those started and they were pretty cool you know instant slow-mo replay and um now we can turn on the tv and we can watch a a tape of a of a historic football game that was played 20 years ago and and besides the 20 years then they have an instant replay and our sense of what's happening when gets gets twisted around but that's fine we're good with that we can handle it because we've gotten we've been trained really and these are all these are the kinds of time machines that are real that are that are a part of the fabric of our lives and they have enriched our understanding of time even as they've added to um, a certain amount of of temporal confusion, and that's that's sort of part of the time travel story, as I see it. Watching 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 us over a period of more than a century get smarter and smarter.
1: Well, we've gone from the pulps to the GIF, right? <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> that's right. A, a big leap. And we've gotten smarter and smarter. Has it affected our expectations? It's funny when you mentioned earlier about the imaginings of the earlier time. You know, we're a big metaphysical household at, at my home, and at least my kids and I are. And so we're always like, oh, my gosh, you know, why do they keep writing these books or making these these movies? Don't they realize, you know, they're somehow like a, playing in a part of creating this as our future? And we, we're not sure we want these um these things to happen? Or or on the flip side, don't these people who invent things at Google like watch these old movies (laughs) and see what happens (laughs) when you put artificial intelligence in these robots?
0: Yeah. Well, that's part of, that's an important function of science fiction, I think, is to warn us about possible futures that might not be so great. when, um, When science fiction was very young, at the beginning of my book about time travel, let's say, the turn of the 19th century, when, when the 19th century turned into the 20th century, everybody was very excited about the future. I think it's fair to say that people were optimistic about technology. They had trains. They had electric lights. Electricity was making possible all kinds of, of labor-saving machinery and, and devices, and they were imagining the wonders that might arrive a century later, by the year 2000, you know, it's great to it's great to look at drawings people made um, when they fantasized about the future in the year 1900: flying cars and and boats that traveled underwater. And um, of course, a lot of these marvels have come true. And then. Along the way, technology brought us some other stuff that, that wasn't so marvelous, like the atomic bomb. And our sense of the wonder of technology has been colored, I'd say, by, well, we've had a reality check. And so when the year 2000 came around, it seemed to me that there wasn't nearly as much wonderment about what the year 2100 might bring. Um, I mean, I don't know how it's, it's how your a, kids feel about the, the year 2100. Does, are they more worried than excited?
1: Well, it's interesting. I, I think maybe the excitement starting to come back because when you were talking about that, I was thinking that's absolutely right. Uh, you and I were jaded in the late fifties and early sixties when in elementary school we're you know hiding under our desks. Which you know my son always jokes, how could anyone have thought that would have helped? But you know <laughs> this idea that you know nuclear war was a real possibility and potential, and that it did then. And I, I wasn't, of course, conscious of it really. I think until you just mentioned it that that jaded our perspective of the future that wasn't wasn't in, in existence before. And I yeah. think now uh, it depends we, if, if you're a brave soul, right? Because some of these changes are so large that they anticipate. You know, do you want to leave the planet and go inhabit some other one? <laughs> like, if that sounds good to you, then maybe it's exciting. If you're you know, more like me, then uh, maybe not so much. Yeah. And
0: meanwhile, we see what we're doing to our own planet, and we worry that... that we're shortening our future, and we're creating a a world that may not be sustainable. And um, when I, it's there's a reason that so much contemporary science fiction has turned has turned darker. And uh, you know the the dark turn in science fiction also goes back to besides atomic bomb things and ruining our own planet things. There's um, the branch of science fiction that that begins with Orwell's 1984 in which he saw that the new information technologies of his time could be used for totalitarianism as well as for democracy. And ever since then, if we're alert, we've been paying attention to, to the extremes of those possibilities. Um, And we, we certainly are now anybody who is sentient about internet things, which is most of us these days, needs to be aware that there's great potential for, for evil as well as great potential for good.
1: And so maybe the blinders have come off for these more recent generations. Yeah. You know, it's or, not all just, it's not the rose-colored glasses. I guess that's more, those, those come off and they see the potential, but they also see, see the risk in some of these developments.
0: That's good. It's good. Yeah, it's good to be scared.
1: So this is Ellie Newman, and that got me thinking. I'm speaking with James Glick, a bestselling author of *The Information*, and most recently the author of *Time Travel: A History*, which is what we're we're speaking about. James, did you still have to remind yourself, or as you were writing the book, that time travel isn't real?
0: I was pretty. Um, I was pretty comfortable. With my sense that time travel isn't real, and what what worried me about that was here I am writing a, a book about time travel, and people are going to open it up and then throw it to the ground in disgust when, when I disappoint them um,
1: and what do and, you say because because you're saying it because I believe in time travel, <laughs> I did not throw the book <laughs> or close okay, the pages
0: good. even though even though I did kind of say in the book that. Time travel isn 't possible when I say kind of I, what I mean is a literal time machine or a time portal you know where you can travel to the year of your choosing in the future or the past i don 't think that 's ever going to be possible, and the reason i don 't think so is that it it conflicts with my deeply held view of what time really is and how it works. If you think that you could travel to, let's say, the year 2120 in your time machine, you're kind of imagining that the year 2120 exists, that it's there waiting for your arrival. And what I prefer to believe is that the year 2120 isn't going to be formed until the universe gets there that the universe is in progress it's constantly changing and we're along for the ride
1: so are are you a fatalist would you say or not a fatalist? no
0: i'm the opposite of a fatalist
1: that's what yeah
0: a, a, a fatalist is somebody who thinks that that whatever happens had to happen whatever is going to happen has to happen and the you know for our sense of free will is an illusion. Um, I'm not totally sure about our sense of free will. I think some of that might be an illusion, but I do think sometimes we make choices, and I do think that the future is, if not totally free, at least so far, undetermined and what has, about you are you a fatalist?
1: I am not. And as you were speaking about kind of whether or not, and, and I guess I was thinking, why didn't I close the pages and throw the book? Well, one, because I was going to be interviewing you, and so that didn't seem like a very good a good approach. But secondly, because um, one, it was okay for, for with me for you to not agree with what I did, but I wasn't sure you didn't agree, because I guess I don't believe that time travel will happen in, or does happen in the way that In the past, people have envisioned it or written about it because I don't think that time is linear. I agree with you on that. I don't think it's, I don't think it's all complete. I don't think that eternity is this closed system. And so I don't think that all the pieces are just waiting at various points in the universe, um, or in the temporal universe. And so I think it wouldn't happen the way they envision it because it's not the way that time works, that there are probably, probable universes happening simultaneously and that time is not as we understand it to be at this point. So then, of course, time travel wouldn't be what we envision from this this standpoint.
0: Right. And, And another, a more positive way to think about it is that time travel is not only possible, but we are time travelers. We've gotten better and better at it. And and it's uh, it, it shouldn't be disappointing if I say that our principal tool for traveling through time is our imagination, is our ability to tell stories and listen to stories and to project ourselves mentally into the past and into the future. I mean, if you really, if you wanted to, an actual device. Well, that might feel like a cheat when I say, "Well, you're just going to have to dream about it." But, but to me, it's not a cheat, and it's not a disappointment. It's um, it's how we enrich our lives. It's what it's what separates us from um, less interesting creatures.
1: Well, and so let's talk a little bit about the, about the relationship through history with the poets, philosophers, and physicists, and the idea that our sense of what an atom is or particles are, how particles interact and how they exert their influence on one another has shifted and what that's done maybe to our ideas about time travel and time and our physical
0: existence. Right. You started by asking me if I was a historian of science and, and when I, when I realized that I could write a book about the story of time travel itself as an idea, the history of the history of time travel, what was great about that, what made the whole thing so much fun for me um, I, I really was disappointed when when the book started to be finished this, It was so much fun to to work on this. Part of the fun was watching the interplay between ideas from this weird realm of fantastic storytelling, science fiction and more literary arts, highbrow fiction, the the work in the early 20th century of James Joyce and Virginia Woolf and Marcel Proust and and people who we don't think of as time travel Writers, but who really were, who were all, all three of those and many others who were starting to think about time in, a, in very interesting, fluid, exciting new ways. And that's because they were plugged into the same cultural currents as everybody else. And, and meanwhile, so were the scientists. So H.G. Wells begins his piece of fantastic storytelling with the time traveler, explaining to his friends that time is actually the fourth dimension, that it's just another form of space. And then 10 years later, this guy, Albert Einstein, publishing in a physics journal in German, offers his, his theory of special relativity in which he says that time is like a fourth dimension of space. And so what's going on there? You know, uh, Einstein, it turns out, was not reading H.G. Wells to, to draw inspiration from him. I sort of hoped that that had been the case, but as far as I can tell, it wasn't the case. And H.G. Wells, meanwhile, was not a clever enough scientist himself to have worked out or anticipated the ideas of relativity. But what was happening was that an entire culture, the whole world, really, was learning new things about time. And they were learning new things about time because they had technologies like the railroad train whizzing people across the landscape and like the electric telegraph sending instant messages and making it possible to synchronize electric clocks at distances of hundreds of miles. And they were also learning new things about time because because uh geologists were digging up the strata of the earth and realizing that that they weren't looking at 6000 years of history as the bible had told them but billions of years of history and biologists were watching the way one species evolved into another species and comparing ancient fossils to the the forms of um modern skeletons and everybody's sense of time was up for grabs everything was changing all at once and and that was a, a to to read to to watch the way humanity was undergoing this, this giant mind shift with respect to the way it it thought about time was just it's just a really ex- exciting and and eye-opening thing.
1: Well, it's funny because I was going to ask you, I had that on my, my list, to ask you about why you'd spent so much time writing about something that you didn't necessarily believe in, but you've just answered that question. Because all of the developments and the paradoxes and the the progression was so engaging and, and interesting.
0: Yeah. Just because I don't believe in time travel in that very narrow, literal way, you know, with the machinery doesn't mean I don't believe in time. I mean, time is, time is the last frontier, right? It's the last great mystery. It's connected to all the other mysteries too.
1: Well, it's funny because because you, when you were talking about Einstein and H.G. Wells, I was thinking, well, he maybe he was time traveling in the way that you just mentioned through his dreams, because he talks a great deal about when he's stuck on a problem or he's looking for an answer or he wants some inspiration, he would take a nap and sort of you know ask the the minds of the past or the minds of the f- future, you know wherever there was this sort of bevy of, of, of inspiration to come to him, and he'd often wake up with, with answers or with great questions. Yeah,
0: that's true. And, and then at the same time, Marcel Proust is doing the same thing. He is imagining his narrator, coincidentally named Marcel, falls asleep and, 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 and dreams in an, in an armchair and is, uh, and is magically transported back to the past. And then again, in the past, his narrator is imagining the future, and time is getting all twisted around the way it had not done in, in writing of previous centuries.
1: And do you, through your, your work and your research, do you feel like people's interest in time travel, the reasons for wanting to travel, have altered? And maybe we could talk a little bit about the Bobs who appear in, in um, the book.
0: About the what? The Bob's,
1: here. the Bob's, the many Bob's. Oh, the Bob's!
0: <laughs> yes, in Robert Heinlein's story. That's that was one of my that was one of my favorites. Um, the original title of the story was Bob's Busy Day, and then when the story was published, it was called By Your Bootstraps. And I read this story again when I was working on my book, and I realized that I had definitely read it when I was a kid. He wrote it, I think, in the nineteen 19- in the 1940s, and um, it's it's an example of sort of you you there was a process of evolution in the storytelling too, you know you have this idea of okay we're gonna accept we're we're gonna accept the premise that it might be possible to travel into the past let's say then what happens and so Robert Heinlein who was fresh out of the navy and trying to make a living pounding out stories for pulp magazines on his typewriter, opens his story with a guy named Bob. Well, of course, that's, that's Heinlein's name, too, coincidentally. And Bob is typing what appears to be a dissertation, a sort of philosophical dissertation with a very pretentious name, something to do with time. And behind him, we, the reader, are told, a hole opens up in the air and a man walks through it. And he taps Bob on the shoulder and says, oh, don't worry about that. That's a, all a waste of time. And he helps himself to some of Bob's liquor. He, knows, he certainly seems to know his way around. And he says, just call me Joe. But we know, because we're smart readers and we've read a lot of time travel stories, that this is, this is Bob himself going through his time portal and meeting himself three days in the past. And so now we we begin to explore the question of what happens if you can actually meet yourself as a time traveler. And weird things happen. Messy things,
1: right? It gets messy. Oh,
0: God, yeah. I mean, for one thing, Bob has a girlfriend, and she gets confused. It it gives the word two-timing a a new new meaning. Um, But imagine you're having a conversation with yourself. And, and so one of you has had the conversation before and the one who's had the conversation before might suddenly realize, well, wait a second, I remember what I said. Can I, do I have to say the same thing again this time or am I going to say it differently? And immediately we bumped into a problem of free will and we bumped into a problem of the continuity of the self. Am I that person or am I a different person? Which, which reflects something that we all feel. And, and this is another reason that time travel stories are so powerful, is that they are capturing things about our real experience. You know, we, we wonder, am I the same person that I was three days ago? Or is that a different person? When I was six years old, was I the same person that I, that I have turned into? Was I destined to become this person? a lot of paradoxes in the time travel business.
1: This is Ellie Newman, and I'm speaking with James Glick, and we're talking about his recent book, Time Travel, A History. And we're going to take just a short break. This is KDPI 88.5 FM drop-in radio, listener-supported, non-commercial community radio, streaming live at kdpifm.org 24-7. So, Mr. Glick, do you have another 10 minutes in you? I'd love to talk a little bit about words and language and energy.
0: Okay. All right.
1: Okay. Great. All right. We're back. This is Ellie Newman. I'm speaking with author and journalist James Glick. So let's talk a little bit about language and words. And this is something that I know has come up in a a number of the, the books you've worked on. Um, how it develops and then how it so affects the thinking of the time. Um, You pretty much made the butterfly effect a household word when you explained the term and explained chaos theory to to the layman. Uh, You talk in this book about a long pink worm slowly and gingerly and the culture was digesting the space-time continuum, and how you know any of us today are like, oh yeah, space-time continuum, you know, yeah, of course, we all know what that is. But that wasn't the I, case.
0: It's true. I do. I have always had a a fascination with words and language, and it keeps intruding on the work I do. And um, you mentioned my biography of Isaac Newton, and that's a that was another case where where I suddenly found myself worrying about the language he was using and the language he was inventing. And time was an important word for Isaac Newton, but he had to redefine it. And he had to redefine other words like mass, which didn't exist in, as a word for a physicist, but became a part of Newton's equations. And time and space, Newton had to define for us. And he said time and space are absolute, and time flows equably. He imagined a kind of cosmic clock in the universe. Um, And all of science fell into line with the way Newton redefined time and everything else, at least for a few hundred years until Einstein came along. And then Einstein broke things open a little bit and said, maybe time is not the same everywhere in the universe. Maybe we each have our own clocks, and a person traveling on a spaceship close to the speed of light um, will discover that her clock runs more slowly than her twin sister's clock back on Earth. And <laughs> so we, we've left the realm of words now and gone back to the realm of mathematics, but that that turns out to be true, and it's been measured. And so our sense of time gets readjusted.
1: Well, and it's a dance, right? That's what I kept thinking throughout the book. And you had, um, from T.S. Eliot, words stain, crack, and sometimes break under the burden, under the tension, slip, slide, perish, decay with imprecision, will not stay in play, will not stay still. And I'm guessing if you take the early scientists and bring them through time travel to this future, they would look at their equations and their understandings and the parameters that they had set around what they were solving for and feel very a uh, kindred sense with, with um, T.S. Eliot and his feelings about words.
0: I, I do think that... Um the way we think about things is conditioned by the words we use in ways that we're, that we're usually unconscious of. We don't think about it. I think I, I'm going to bet that if I asked you Ellie to stand up and point to the future you now, and our listeners can imagine doing that, I bet that pretty much everybody is pointing forward, but there are cultures here on earth where people envision the future as lying behind them. That is physically at the backs of their heads. And why is that? Well, the words of the language are different. We use a lot of the same words. Forward is both a a spatial expression and an expression of time, right? And it could be the other way around. It's possible to think, and there are cultures on Earth that think this way, that the that the future lies behind us because that's where we can't see. And what we can see is in front of us, and we can see the past. So there's a kind of logic there.
1: I guess I'm, I'm putting together the things we've spoken about, and I think when you ask me about the future, I'm thinking about what will we, how will we think differently. And I guess my, if I had to guess, I'd say that with the things we've talked about and the focus on mind travel, that... I feel like there will be proof or there, you know, some will argue there already is some proof, some of the people I've interviewed, some of the neuroscientists, that what we think about has a, you know, that it produces an energy which then has an actual physical effect on our world. And I would say probably on creating that unknown future that lies, that probability future that lies waiting somewhere around us.
0: Uh, I think we're creating our future all the time. I mean, that's that's that could be a positive lesson or a negative lesson, depending on your point of view. And the fact that we're creating it means, well, there's not necessarily a shortcut, you know? We're, that's why I don't believe that we can get in, into a time machine and, and leap ahead
1: because ah, the future is in progress. Because the process it, is part of the creation of getting to that exactly. space. Exactly. Okay, so two quick questions, and and we'll wrap this up. Are we moving toward order or disorder? Is the first?
0: Oh, um, we are constantly mixing the two of them. My my first book was called Chaos, and that and the science of chaos is a science of disorder, and and I I revel in that, and I think I think we all do. You know, it's uh, it was disappointing when science was all about only orderly things because most of the stuff we're interested in is is chaotic so uh, i think the best thing for us to do is to is to seek a balance
1: so if you could take a ride in a time machine would you go and where would you go if you decided to
0: oh i always thought that i would that it was obvious that anybody would want to go into go to the future, that that's what time machines were for. And that the most interesting kind of time travel would be time travel into the future. But I have to admit that the more I worked on my time travel book, the less sure I've been about that. And I'm beginning to appreciate the possible joys of traveling into the past, seeing what it was like, um, I don't think we'll be able to kill Hitler, as everybody hoped we could do, but, you know, I wish I I could go back and meet Isaac Newton or go back to the time of Shakespeare and and watch him with his players.
1: And again, as hard as it is to say, but I'm thinking my 12-year-old son would say, but, you know, I don't know if we should go back and kill Hitler, because you don't know what would happen instead. You know, if you've watched enough of those movies, it it doesn't always end for the best, right, when you shift something big like that. Maybe it's what we could do stuff, instead of kill right. Hitler is we could get him accepted into that art school that he really wanted to go to.
0: <laughs> Great idea. Maybe
1: that would shift things in a, in a really positive note. Well, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. and You too. This, again, this is Ellie Newman, and that got me thinking. And I've been speaking with James Glick, his most recent book, Time Travel, A History. And do we know what's next? Is, are you working no, on a, we another don't. project?
0: Uh, if if i if i if my unconscious knows it's keeping a secret from me so far
1: you got to go take a nap yeah all right well thank you so much it's a real pleasure okay thank okay, you bye bye